Let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, another day that we can worship you and enjoy you and come together and learn about you and your word. We pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts and our minds to all the wonderful things that you've done for us in your Son as we study very briefly the, the new covenant and what you have initiated and what you one day will complete when you return in the great redemption that we have. And it's his name we pray. Amen. So this is the last week of our the drama of redemption quarter and understanding of how we find ourselves in God's story. And next week we'll begin understanding the doctrine of redemption as we kind of go through the Apostles' Creed. Uh, but the four things that I want to think about this week, just briefly, is number one, how Jesus is being portrayed as the true and faithful Son. And then second, after that, we'll talk about the heart of the Gospel. Like, What is the essence of it? Um, there are a lot of things that are a part of the Gospel, but if we don't get this, the heart of it right, we miss out on a lot. And then the third thing we'll be talking about is Jesus' victory over death and His resurrection. And then finally, thinking about the new heavens and new earth and the future hope that we have. Uh, so first, uh, how Jesus reveals Himself as this true and faithful Son. So Jesus isn't just this, the answer to so many of the questions that we have. Um, as modern Americans, we oftentimes don't have the right questions. And so when we come to the Bible with the stories that we've lived in and the stories that we seep into our minds and our hearts through entertainment, through the mall, through whatever it is in, in, in society, we get a bunch of different questions that we bring to the Bible that Jesus just isn't answering. Um, Jesus is giving us better questions. Uh, he knows... It's not that our, our needs and our questions aren't important. It's just that a lot of the things that we think about oftentimes are just so short-sighted. We look at our immediate problems and we think those are the most important. But Jesus is coming and saying that's not the deepest problem, our most serious issues that we have. Because we just tend to focus on our symptoms that are just kind of like right in front of us. And those symptoms, those things are very real. Like we talked about those things several weeks ago about feelings of loneliness and abandonment, our feelings of guilt and fear, of broken relationships, of our finances, or even our health issues. But Jesus is answering us things that are just like deeper and wider than those things that we face because he didn't just come to give us that best life now that we're kind of told that we deserve. He's coming to give us eternal life. And he came to free us from the curse of death and hell and the tyranny that those habits that poison our relationship with God and each other are just the effects of. So those things that we often focus on are just the symptoms and the effects that we talked about several weeks ago of that fear of death of the slavery of death that Satan loves to blind us with. Um, so, Jesus is interested in revealing himself in a very specific way in his story. Uh, like last week, in several weeks, we talked about some of the big plots, the big picture of see scenes where we see these, this war that's going on that started in Genesis 3.15. Uh, do you remember that war that we talked about between the seed of the, the woman versus the seed of the 
the serpent, right? And that this battle has been going on since then because Satan knows that God in Genesis 3.15 has tied his promises to a specific human, like in history. Like it's, it's not this, this ephemeral salvation that's just kind of like up there. It's like, no, God, in order to have salvation for us in a very real way, has to tie himself to Adam's race in a specific human being. And so Satan knows that, and he knows that God has promised to work within history, and so he is hell-bent on short-circuiting the, short-circuiting the plan and killing the promised son, the promised seed of the woman, the Abraham's seed and offspring, someone from the line of David. And he's hell-bent on doing that. Um, so Satan has his eyes on intercepting the Messiah and trying to kill the family line. And so when we, when we arrive at Jesus' birth, at the, his first coming, Satan sends out all the demons. We see in the New Testament all this demonic activity, all these things happening because they know the Messiah is on the scene to try to destroy the kingdom of the devil that he's captured the whole world with. And this is the biggest battle between the seed of the, the woman and the seed of the serpent that's happening. And just like in the days of Pharaoh, like we talked about last week, who massacred all the male infants of the Hebrews, there's another guy, Herod, who's, a, who's the king in, in Judah, in Judea, and he attempts to massacre all the same kind of children in Bethlehem where, where Jesus is born. And God miraculously delivers Joseph and Mary by telling them to flee to Egypt and waiting out for this King Herod to die and waiting for him just to pass off. And when Jesus returns with his family from Nazareth, it's like the Bible is actually portraying it as this new exodus, as this new redemption thing that's happening, that Jesus is the true Israel. He is the true and faithful Son who's doing what the exodus we talked about last week was just a a small glimpse. And so that's why Matthew 2 says, out of Egypt I called my Son, fulfilling this prophecy. So, like we were saying, like when we come to the Bible with our questions, we are often missing, we don't make, that doesn't make sense to us. Why would he say, out of Egypt I called my son? It's talking about Israel, and now we're applying to Jesus. Um, when we ask our kind of questions, we often miss the, th- the real thing that's going on, what Jesus is saying, what God is saying about Jesus in the Bible. Um, so, the New Testament opens up, and it has this picture of this true and faithful son who's doing everything for us. I think there's like one good phrase to describe how we should look at every single thing that happens in Jesus' life. It's for us. Jesus is being the faithful son for us. He's being the faithful people of God for us. And we see that right at the beginning of the Gospels where Jesus is beginning his ministry and he's baptized, and he's saying he's doing this to fulfill all righteousness, and he's specifically doing this baptism of repentance. And so it's just kind of this weird thing, because if Jesus is perfect and sinless, why would he be going through this baptism of repentance? And that's what the John Baptist actually says. It's like, I should be baptized by you. I'm, I'm a sinful scumbag of a human. You know, like, yeah, I'm like, I'm, I'm living out in the wilderness. So you should be baptizing me. And Jesus is like, hold on, you don't get it. 
I have to repent for you in order for you to be saved. I have to be cleansed for you in order for your repentance to, to stand before God. And so Jesus is beginning this ministry and he's instantly being thrown into the world and we have this one scene where Jesus is being thrown into the wilderness and the Spirit throws him east of Eden, just like Adam and Eve, and Satan is confronting him. And the picture that, they're, that the New Testament is trying to portray is just like, he's, he's just like Adam, except for he's in the exact opposite condition. Adam was in this lush, beautiful garden, in perfection, had everything he needed, and Jesus is in the wilderness of death and he's being confronted by Satan, and he's starving. And he's having the same exact trial going on, and he's doing it for us. So that's it's like the big thing. is like When we read the Gospels, we need to think, like, how is Jesus being the second and new Adam? How is he being the true and faithful son? And he's doing all these things for us. Um, Matthew's Gospel, for instance opens up with the genealogy of Jesus. The Gospel begins with the book of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So like all the things I was saying, like it's just pointing it out there, saying, okay, all these people that we, you know in the Old Testament, he's from that line. God has tied himself to history, like we said. He's tying himself to this specific genealogy. Not just for no reason, but because God requires this true son to come who, who delights in God's law and that takes pleasure in it. Not just out of duty, not just because like, oh, I guess I have to, you know, but he's, he's doing it because it's his purpose and he loves it and it reflects God so perfectly. Um, so the genealogies begin the many of the Gospels because God is saying, I am tying myself specifically to these people and he's bound up our salvation by being descendant from, from Adam, Abraham, and then David. So that's just kind of like the, the introduction. But backing up a little, um, what we see with the coming of Christ is that he's coming to this land of Israel. They had broken this old covenant and they had been exiled in 586 BC by this large empire from the east that came and took them away, the Babylonian Empire. They destroyed Jerusalem and the temple over several years, and they're cast, just like Adam and Eve, east of Eden, and they're cast into exile, into curse. And ever since then, because they had been disobedient, the whole people of God had been under exile. At the time of Jesus' birth, the Roman Empire was the dominant empire over the whole world, and they were Israel's master. They were the new Pharaoh, their new taskmaster. And I mentioned before, King Herod, he was just merely this puppet king over the Jews, and he was acting like he wanted to be the Messiah. He wanted to be from this descent, from Abraham and from David. But everyone knew that Herod was just a joke, that he was just a puppet. He was just being run by the Roman Empire, and he was not the god-like king that everyone was hoping for. And so you have this huge period of 400 years where 
God is silent. Everyone is under curse. Everyone feels abandoned. And they're all hoping for this Messiah to come. And that is specifically the background, the backdrop of when Jesus comes onto the scene and why we encounter Jesus being called the Son of God. Um, This is a really important title, not because it's even depicting that he's the eternal Son of God, but it's specifically throughout the Bible, Adam is called the Son of God. The image bearer is called the Son of God, who's created to faithfully represent God and serve him and use his power and his authority to serve those around him and uphold them. So um, we even saw like that last, year, uh, last week that Moses in the Old Testament called Israel the Son of God, God's chosen people. It was, a, his, it was God's adopted children. Um, when Moses came to get the people up out of Egypt, he says, go and tell Pharaoh that this is what the Lord says, that Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But if he refuse, if he refuses, he says, I will kill your firstborn to Pharaoh. And, but we know what happened. We, uh, Pharaoh doesn't let God's people go. And God comes down and he does destroy Egypt's firstborn just like Pharaoh had massacred the Hebrew children. So God is saying, like, you're doing this to my people and I'm going to come in and take your firstborn because you're withholding my firstborn from me. Um, so when Jesus is coming on the scene, this is what, he, what it's talking about when he's saying the Son of God, that the Bible is showing that Jesus is coming as this true and faithful servant who's submitting himself completely to God's law doing everything that the Father had told him to do. Um, that Christ is now this first Son of God who's going to restore the image. He's the second Adam who's going to do everything perfectly. And that is what God had been waiting for. Um, Old Testament Israel was waiting for this Messiah to come, but God was waiting for a faithful son in the world who would do what pleases him. Not simply, like as we said, out of duty, but that this was the pleasure to offer up his body as a living sacrifice of praise. And this would actually fulfill the purpose of all of creation. And Jesus is precisely that. He's this unique son from the line of Jesse, from the line of David. And his love for his father is constantly being sharply contrasted with all the failed kings of Israel, all the failed children of God who, who were sometimes faithful and sometimes not faithful, Jesus is on the scene. And unlike David, he's not going out and stealing people's wives and killing them. Um, as great as David was, as, as great as David is called the man after God's own heart, he just destroys the law in that one act of taking Bathsheba where the king was actually supposed to go after the foreigner and the sojourner and protect them more than anyone else. He's taking this Hittite's wife and, and killing him. So David failed. Um, so Jesus is being constantly portrayed in this way as the servant king who's bowing himself down and serving everyone. He's 
the seat of promise that's going to be upon this everlasting throne. So Jesus is the Son of God now, as we're seeing it. He's not nearly the Son of God just by being the eternal Son of God as a member of the Trinity, but He's also, as a human being, being declared and made officially the Son of God, this human representative, the servant of God's covenant, who finally hears and obeys everything that God asks of him and more. So, we even read uh, in Isaiah that this is what was prophesied, that, that God would send his servant who he would uphold, his chosen one whom he would delight in, he would put his spirit upon him, and he will bring justice to the nations. Uh, this, is, this is something that Adam and Israel and David all failed to do, that he would bring mercy and righteousness and the word of God to the ends of the earth. And this is the father. The father is saying of this son who he's always had at his side, he's like, this is the son that I've so loved that I'm now going to give to the world. My only son. Um, Jesus of Nazareth would refuse his selfish cravings even out in the desert in the wilderness where he's being tempted. And he's saying, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. That's my desire. That's what I crave more than physical sustenance. So Jesus is the true and faithful son in that sense, but he's also the heir of the promise that, that God made to Abraham so many years ago. He's the, the son who has come through this entire line that God has constantly been working to, to bring in, in spite of so much opposition. Even when Abraham is trying to you know, get the job done on his own, as we heard last week, and he's trying to force God to work by having a child through Hagar, God is just like, okay, once you just let go, and I'll, then I'll work. Like, I'm just going to put you to sleep for a little while, and then I'll work. Um, so many times when we try to force God's hand and His promises, what happens? It's just like, we make things worse. We, uh, Abraham creates this thousands of year long warfare between the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Isaac. And that's still going on today in the, new, in the news. Um, that's what happens when we try to get involved and force God's hand. Like we just make a train wreck of things. But once Abraham stopped striving and rested and believed God's promises, he was justified and God calls him the father of all of this spiritual children, the father of all those who would believe God's promises. So that's the, the big backdrop of what we're seeing with Jesus who's coming on the scene and the Pharisees and the Sadducees are duking it out with him and they're constantly attacking what Jesus is saying because they just don't get it. They are like Abraham was trying to do. They're trying to force God's promises. They're trying to in- make God indebted to them through keeping the law. And I would, you know, if I do my part, you know, God, you have to do your part. We'll make a deal and a bargain. And you know, I'm descended from Abraham, so you better give me these promises. Um, but 
John the Baptist comes out and tells them, he's like, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the, the wrath to come? He says, you have to produce fruit in the keeping of repentance. And don't think that you can say to yourselves that we have Abraham as our father, because I tell you that out of the stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. So God is saying, it's not based on your descendants. It's not based on law keeping because you guys have all failed at that. It's going to be, are you united to my son? Are you going to be in fellowship with Jesus, who's the only true and faithful son? And that is going to be how you're part of the kingdom of God. That is going to be how you are, in many ways, seen now as holy, allowed into my presence again. Um, so that brings us to our, our second point, the heart of the gospel. Um, as, we're, as we're seeing throughout this whole series, how important all these covenants are. In many ways, they're the foundation. They're the building blocks of actually what the gospel is. Without these things, you're like taking a string from a shirt that's starting to come out and you're just pulling it and it's starting to unravel. So you could have the gospel, but the foundation is just totally eroded without, these, without God specifically fulfilling these covenant promises, these historical promises, objectively in His Son. So the big thing that Jesus is fulfilling is, as we saw, what Israel could not do. They could not fulfill this law covenant. They could not fulfill what God had required of Adam at creation. Um, they can't be justified or declared righteous before God merely by being descendants of Abraham. No, the, the tables are turning and Jesus is saying the only way you can be accepted in God's presence is by being blessed by the seed of the woman, by the seed promised to Abraham, to me. And this becomes ours by being just like Abraham, by stopping and resting and resting in that promise. And the answer, how we become in relationship with Him, we call being united to Christ or in union with Christ. We're having a relationship with Him. This is, this is the way that we can be justified before God. Um, that Christ is the new category, the new category in the ledger. Before we were in Adam, in Israel, but now we're being transported to this new bank account, into in Christ. And in Christ, we have everything. Outside of Christ, we have nothing. This is the reality that Christ came preaching when He's saying, I am the door, I am the vine to the branch, and you are the branches. No one comes to the Father except through me. That we're brought to God by God Himself. We're made acceptable to God by God Himself. And these promises alone are the basis by which we can do that. Apart from the law, apart from meeting God halfway, apart from our physical descent, all of these things, God is saying, no, everyone is guilty, but I'm not going to just leave you there. God is declaring unrighteous people to be righteous even while you're still unrighteous. 
because you are in Christ, because everything that He has done for us is now credited to us. And this is the heart of the Gospel. The Gospel includes a lot of things, but this is the heart of it. Uh, that the Holy Spirit brings us to Christ through we hearing the Gospel, we are united to Him, and everything that is His becomes ours. His righteousness becomes ours. And it's what we call the word for that is imputation. Think of it like a banking kind of term, like a credit. Like you're getting a credit to your account. We've talked about this a lot already, maybe not using this term, but really we've talked about three different imputations in the Bible. There's been the imputation of Adam's sin to us. His original sin has been credited and given to his whole race. And that was in the fall. That was the first imputation. And then the second imputation happens where our sin, our debt, our guilt and corruption is given to Christ on the cross. And this thing, what a lot of the early church would call the marvelous exchange, where Christ's righteousness, His perfection, His glory is then imputed or credited to us. And that is the heart of the Gospel. That the rags that we have that were clothed in the shame and the guilt and corruption, those things we talked about in the second week, are exchanged for Christ's riches. That He becomes everything to us. That we have nothing apart from Him. And so this, this is the, the great doctrine that we call justification, where we're being, that we're highlighting it right now. Spelled that right. Justification. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I can't spell and write at the same time and talk. Um, so this great doctrine of justification, it's kind of like what we talked about before with the illustration of the sun and the flower. You guys remember that? Oh, that was a good one. That was a good one. So, we're the, the flower in this illustration, and God is the sun. And, I don't know if you can see. Um, being in God's special presence, His holy presence, is where we get our life and where we get our existence. And sin brought guilt into the equation, and guilt broke that relationship down. And so, you, you, and we're cast, like Adam and Eve east of Eden, out of God's holy presence, you can imagine what a, a flower does without sun. It starts dying. It starts corrupting. It starts decaying. And so the first thing that we need to get God, in back God, into God's presence so we can be in His life, in His light, is for that guilt, that declaration, to be done away with. And that's what justification is. Um, as an example, if you're... If you're guilty of something and you say like you hurt someone and so you have to have this um, this judge come in and says like, okay, you can't be with these people anymore. You can't be around them. You can't do anything like that. The, the relationship is severed legally by this declaration. So even if you have really good feelings and you're, and you're sorry for what you did, if you go near them, the cops are going to come and you're going to get arrested even if you start like having a nice, warm relationship with that person. So what has to happen is that the judge has to repeal that decision for you before you can actually be in their presence. 
And it's the same exact kind of thing that's going on, that this has to happen in this way before we can actually start being sanctified and made, being made holy, we have to be declared by the judge. We, God is saying, I have to s- declare this judgment so that guilt is no longer uh, on, written all over you. Once that's dealt with, then Christ is going to start forming you and shaping you into his image. Um, and that's what we call sanctification. So it, th- missing, missing up this order is the problem that we constantly have. Like thinking that we have to be really good in order for to be accepted by God. Thinking that we have to you know, have the best repentance or have the, the most full faith. Like if I just you know, really give myself over to the Lord, he will love me. And Jesus is saying no. <laughs> He's like, no, I had to do all of that for you. But because of that, this part, being in my presence, being declared righteous, is free. It's, it's totally free, and it's not based on what you've done. And that is because when Jesus is coming on the scene, he's not just dying on the cross and taking away our guilt, but he's doing something else. He's giving us positive righteousness. He's positively giving us what we need for God to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. So he's not just taking away our guilt to make us at at zero on the ledger. He's giving us a full account that can't be taken away. And that's everything that that Christ has done for us in his life. His whole life was this thing that was for us. His whole death was something that was for us. And because he did that, he can start now, because he's conquered us and brought us into his kingdom, that is why he can start now making us holy. That is how he now starts slowly changing our desires, slowly changing our habits from the fear of death to life and love that we have in him. So that's that's the heart of the gospel, is that God in Jesus is turning the tables and He's coming to the tax collector, to the IRS man, and the tax collector can't raise his eyes to heaven and he's beating his brow because of the guilt that he has. And he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the Pharisees are like, well, Jesus, why are you with him? You know, don't you know taxation is theft? I mean, the IRS, I mean, they're coming for you. They're like, they're taking away my money. Like, the Pharisees are pissed. You're hanging out with these tax collectors? And you're just like, yeah, I came to save the sick. I came to save the sinful. The physician is only needed for those who are ill. And Jesus tells them, I tell you, the person who goes home justified, the person who's actually made right before God, is that tax collector. That, that is the man who is pleasing in my sight. The, the sinner is the one I've come to call. The sinner is the one I've come to seek and to save. And so that was a direct challenge that you see throughout the New Testament. That is the the dynamic that we're going to be seeing whenever you open up the New Testament passage, whether it's the Gospels or the Epistles, that people don't get that. And it takes dozens of letters by the Apostles and reading and reading over and over and over again these things is that we want to say, no, you have to be sanctified and made holy before 
you are acceptable in God's presence. Because we're, we're built, we're wired for the law, we're wired in the creation for thinking that our relationship to God is based on works. Um, but Christ is coming, and He is doing this, He's living this life for us, and then He's going to the cross. Because the cross is where He's going to make atonement for sin. He's not only going to be living the righteous life that we all need, but he's also making atonement. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the two different sacrifices in the Leviticus. You had the scapegoat, and then you had on the Day of Atonement, these two different things that were picturing what Christ came to do. That he came to, to bear away the curse of the law, that being east of Eden, having that guilt on us, he was like that scapegoat that we talked about bearing our sins, being laid upon Him, being imputed to that scapegoat, the hands being laid and transferring it and going out into the desert to die. Jesus is going out into the desert to die. He's going out into the wilderness on the cross and He's bearing those things. But He's also, in doing that, we talked about the other one, that was expiation. The second thing was propitiation. He's turning God's wrath away that we justly deserved. And He's, he's our ransom. He's our substitute. And He's doing all these things, as we said, for us. So that we can now go, go to Jesus and go to God and that veil separating us from His presence, this veil separating us from His light, from being where God is in His holy majesty has been torn. The veil of the temple has been torn so that we can enter into God's bedroom, His holy of holies, and we can wake up God at 5 a.m. in the morning. You know, like we can be in His presence and call on His name, and we have that direct access because of Jesus' death. Death itself has been torn apart in His work because we have this new mediator who's better than Moses. We have a mediator who's better than all these failures in the past. God has made Himself completely accessible because we can draw near to the throne of grace through Him. We're in His shadow and God just sees us as He sees His Son. And so we don't ever have to come to God with that shame that we always feel, the shame that bears us down because we can have confidence because God does this amazing thing again. God not only lived the perfect life for us in Jesus and died for us, but the Father accepts the sacrifice by then raising Jesus from the dead. So that's our third thing that we'll try to have to quickly go through. <laughs> um, so Jesus' life and then His death and now His resurrection is something even on top of that. It just keeps getting any better and better. Um, Jesus' resurrection is His victory over death itself. Um, Christ lived this perfect life and He died this sacrificial death, this atonement for our sins. Um, but as we remember, we talked about the three different things that we bear because of Adam's sin. We had the guilt, the shame, and the corruption. And Jesus is done with the guilt and He's working the shame out as well by bearing our shame on the cross, but the corruption of death 
still has to be dealt with. And that's what Jesus is dealing with in the resurrection. Uh, because we're all victims of those things. We're victim of the death clinging to us. Um, which is exactly how Satan enslaves us. He enslaves us through the fear of death. And in order to remove that from us, death itself needs to be conquered. And this is what we, we see with Christ. Um, that what we need in this regard is for God to even go to the depths of hell itself on our behalf and to suffer what no one has suffered. He's gone further than everyone else. And He has to do that in order to free us from our greatest enemy. And our greatest enemy being killed will bring us freedom from that bondage. This is the clearest, most powerful manifestation of what God is doing for us in Christ is that His victory over death itself and the resurrection. That God is reclaiming the whole world in that act. He's, he's reclaiming us and He's reclaiming all of creation, undoing the last, most fatal consequence of Adam's sin. And this benefits us in, in several different ways that Christ's resurrection, He overcome, overcame death so that we can share in His righteousness that He's won for us. We also can now experience that new life the new life that we have in Christ is because of His resurrection. And it's also, lastly, a guarantee of our future resurrection. So God accomplishes this redemption in Christ's victory, in His victory over, over sin and death now that we see in, in His resurrection. Um, but, but the effects of that victory still haven't been completely realized in us. Um, the ultimate outcome has been assured the the second coming when heaven and earth will come down where, where where Christ will return that's been completed and assured for us, but we still struggle between life and death we still struggle with good and evil um, but the resurrection of Christ still assures us that we can hold on to that we can latch on to his resurrection knowing that our resurrection will come. Jesus was physically raised from the dead as the firstborn. That's how the Bible talks about it. He's just the firstborn, the firstfruits. He's just going up before we get there. He's at the train, at the head of the train. We're just at the caboose, and he's going. And we know that because he did it, we got it too. And it's so important that the Apostle Paul himself said, if Christ was not raised, then Stop being Christians. Go out and have a better life. Go out and have a better life now. There's no reason to be moral. There's no reason to actually believe any of this bupkis. It's, it's all... I don't, yeah, I don't know how, how to make it more drastic. It's, it's all hoodoo. <laughs> if Jesus was not raised from the dead, and he's saying, but he was... Look at all the people. There's 500 people you can talk to right now, Paul says, that saw this happen. And he lastly appeared to me untimely and is like, we know that if he was raised, this whole enterprise is more than worth it. It's, it's going to happen to us and we can live and hold out for him. So through his resurrection, 
Jesus opens up the new way for us to experience new life, even now, but then also the new heavens and new earth when He returns. Instead of the death that we deserve, Christ is giving us back what Adam failed. He's, he's giving us back an identity that can't be shaken. Like He's answering different questions, as we said at the beginning of a class. He's answering questions that we often don't even have. He's getting past all those symptoms that the fear of death produces in us, and He's getting to the actual cause. And He's giving us a better identity, a future that really has peace. And He's saying that we can recognize for the first time that our future ends in peace. That our past can be healed and forgiven. And that we can live in hope of the Gospel because we, we know that Christ, His life is ours. His life is given to us completely. And His identity was so fixed on pleasing God. But another thing that he had was that he saw each one of us. And for the joy that was set before him, knowing that each one of us would be with him for eternity, that's why he endured the cross. That's why he was willing to go out and defeat Satan. Because of the joy of you and me. And that, that's just like, that's our identity. It's this new joy that the resurrection brings that can't be undone. Um, we are no longer strangers to God or one another. And we're not isolated and alone, even if we feel like that sometimes. That's not your identity. So quickly, um, sorry if I'm just breezing through this, but that brings us to our future hope, the fourth thing. Uh, The blessing that Christ's work gives us is that we're going to be redeemed for all of eternity. We're going to have that light and life with God in His presence forever for eternity. You know, one of the purposes that God is accomplishing in what Christ has done, you know, isn't so that we're just going to be saved. Isn't so we're just like going to float around bodiless and in heaven forever, but so that He can come down and not only undo what Adam's sin caused, but to bring about a whole new heavens and new earth. Um. We don't have time to do it today, but I, I recommend reading Revelation 21 as a picture of what this perfection looks like. This is, it's, it's, it's not just going to back to how things were. It's a whole new world reborn in total bliss and perfection that doesn't have the possibility of falling again, that doesn't have the possibility of sin and death, that He's going to make all things new and God will be at the center, that His holy of holies, His his bedroom is going to be the center of the universe and we're going to be able to be there forever and ever and have perfect communion with Him and each other. So, this is our final home, not just heaven. Heaven isn't, Heaven's going to be wonderful after we, when we die and we are with the Lord, but our final destination, our final home is going to be when heaven comes down to earth and transforms everything. We're going to be perfectly embodied human beings for the first time, resurrected and glorified just like Christ. And death will be replaced with life. And night will be replaced with light. And the light of the world will be God Himself. Corruption will be replaced by complete purity. 
and our disgrace will be replaced by God's grace. That God Himself will dwell with His people in this perfect place of bliss with Him at, at the presence, in the presence of us forever. Um, and that's ultimately what the whole Bible is getting at. God wanted to create this amazing place where His presence, where heaven would come down to earth with Adam. And that's what the whole thing was moving towards. He had that goal even back then. And so God is doing whatever He can to get us back there, to get us back on track to having that perfect presence with Him where He, as a holy God, doesn't have to punish sin anymore. doesn't have to worry about that in us. And we will just forever be around the Lamb that was slain, praising Him for what He's accomplished for us. Faith, you know, will give away to sight. And prayer will give away just to constant praise where everything we do will no longer have that feeling like, you know, of, of failure, of constant regret. Like, I didn't do enough. Like, oh man, I'm not even here even though I'm worshiping God on Sunday. You know, like my praise feels like crap. And we're just constantly in that tension. We're like, okay, yeah, this was a really great mountaintop experience. And then it's bad. And then it's great. And then, you know, and <laughs> that's not going to exist anymore. It's just going to be pure, pure delight in God and in each other. Um, and that's just such a wonderful picture that God is holding out for us, saying just a little longer. Just, just wait. Just look how long. It's like, I fulfill my promises. I fulfill my promises. And, and it's going to happen again even better. And all of these things, every single thing from beginning to end, all the wonderful things that we're going to experience are because of Christ. Like all the things that we're going to enjoy are because that those things are ours forever in Jesus. That He went through the valley of the shadow of death so that we don't have to do that. And, th- and this is really how the Gospel engages us and how we really can start seeing ourselves and God's story. Um, the Gospel really engages us even though we constantly feel pain and shame, rejection and loss and sin all the time and death is just around us. Because the Gospel is saying to your pain that you will be healed. That to your shame that God wants you to come to Him in confidence. You can expect His favor. Not just like hope for it, like in this wishful thinking. He's like, no, expect it. Come with confidence. I want you here, even though I know you still struggle. And you are accepted. You are found. And I'm never going to let you go. Um, The Gospel says that you're forgiven. And God is declaring you perfectly pure and just and right. And He's going to start making you what He's declared you that reality of who we are, He's slowly going to make us into that until the day He returns when it's going to be completely perfect. And so that to death, the Gospel even says that you were once dead, but now alive. Uh, One poet put it this way, I love how he put it. He says, death used to be an executioner, but now it's merely a gardener. I just like love that because it's just, you know, death was the legal sentence for the crime. But now it's just awaiting for the day when we will be raised again. 
And it's no longer that threat. It's no longer something that destroys our hope. Um, and to close, uh, I just like love how uh, one of the one of a Reformed catechisms puts it in this way that it's just such a beautiful de- depiction description of our hope. It says, "What is your only comfort in life and in death?" This is that I'm not my own, but I belong in body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ, because He's fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. And he so preserves me in such a way that without the will of my father, my heavenly father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, that everything must work together for my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of the eternal life and makes me hardly willing and ready from now on to live unto him. And I think it's just like encapsulates so well what the new covenant brings about as a reality. All of God's promises are fulfilled in Christ. All the covenants that He made throughout the Old Testament that we went through show that God's steadfast love endures forever. And that's, that's really the heart of the entire Bible. That's, that's the big purpose, the big arch that He's getting us to is to realize that one thing. Um, I guess we have a few minutes for questions or comments or rebukes or rebuttals. Or just thoughts. Anything? Yes, sir. Sure. Um... Through the fear of death, we are, in many ways, captivated by the very things that hold us down. So our shame, our entire view of ourselves, how we live in this life, our anxiety, our stress, all of those things relate to how we view ourselves. All those things are our identity. And Satan loves to put our shame and our corruption and our vulnerability on display in the world. So when people hurt us, our vulnerability is on display because we're weak and we're corruptible. And so what is the thing that we do? That fear drives us to break ourselves off from others. It's like, I'm not going to deal with that person. I they just did that to me. Like, no. Um, and so Satan is bringing in our vulnerability and our very corruptibility as a means of exploiting ourselves. And as the means by which we now see our identity, our value and worth. And that, that fear of death is what our entire culture is trying to deny. Whatever it is, whether it's science or the media, or entertainment. We're, we're just, we, just, we don't even want to think about it. We want to push down the, that, that fact. We want to put death outside of, the, outside of the city. We don't even want to see graveyards and cemeteries. So our identity, whether it's wanting to be youthful forever, having perfectly fit bodies, all of those things are forms of death denial. 
all those things are attempts to trick ourselves and put down the fact that we're all going to follow Adam's train. And so Satan uses in in different cultures, in different ways, that fear of death to, to actually produce sin in us. So fear is what drives us to sin. Fear is, is the context. Uh, so we, th- we often think of, of sin as just this nebulous thing, but it has a very specific roots in our family upbringing. So if, if you had a, a terrible parent, you, oftentimes it's very hard to trust people. It's hard to open up to people and actually have the relationships that you need to actually thrive. So sin has a very specific um, trajectory in our lives. It's not just this nebulous thing. It has very particular ways that it's formed and shaped in us and enslaves us. And uh, uh, Sorry, I'm just going to keep going on, but is that, does that help? So, so when Christ removes that fear of death and He's constantly showing the Gospel in our lives, He's removing death as the main thing of our identity. Death is no longer part of that. And Christ is restoring our self-image just as much as He is giving us a new identity. But, good question. Any other thoughts? Or Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word and for Your Son who was so faithful even to the point of death, and even the death on the cross, uh, but did so willingly and out of joy because You did not want to be God without us. You did not want to go on into eternity without Your people. And so You willingly sent Your Son out of love to become an atonement for our sins and to be raised from the dead as a sign of what will come for us. And so we pray, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts and our minds for worship, that you would allow us to receive Christ more and more, and that we could rest in his finished work for us. And it's his name we pray. Amen.